brother. I'll use one of these, yeah. Well, you don't know me, uh, but uh, I've heard a lot about you. Uh, no, your, your pastor likes you a lot. Uh, so it's good to finally get to uh, know you a little bit. Uh, I can tell a couple of things. I can tell you really care for each other. Uh, that's pretty clear uh, coming in a little early to see you fellowship and, and reconnect after a week. Uh, I know you like to worship. You know, it's good. Um, and as a, as a really a seven-year-old church, uh, seven-year-old, right, mm-hmm. since you got planted? Um, my, my prayer is that, that uh, the fire uh, that burned in year one would continue to burn in year eight and nine and ten, and that it would drive you uh, to be on mission uh, because the, the church continues to be God's primary plan to grow his kingdom. Can you imagine that? 2,000-year-old plan, and it's still his plan. You are the plan. Yep, you are the plan. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, uh, I'm uh, Ed. I, I have a wife with four kids, kind of a regular guy. Um, and uh, I have this uh, crazy job right now to to oversee uh, a bunch of our churches in what they call the Ohio Valley District, which is uh, western half of Ohio and the state of Kentucky. Uh, So on the one hand, I grieve with you for your great loss this week uh, in Ohio football, the Ohio State football. But we get to celebrate because uh, Kentucky did win their game. Do I hear an amen? Um, so it is good to, to be with you. Uh, most of my career actually was uh, as a missionary, and uh, this is kind of a missionary Sunday for you. Uh, most of my life uh, with my, uh, my adult life with my wife, and uh, when we started my very young kids, uh, was spent in the, the country of Jordan, uh, in the city of Amman. Who knows where Jordan is? The military guy should. Uh, so what countries border Jordan? Give me one. Did I hear Saudi? You're right. That's to our south. Kuwait doesn't. Israel? That's right. Israel is over on the, the west side of Jordan. What other? Two other countries. Syria to our north and Iraq. Yeah, to our our west. So that's where we lived uh, most of our career. Uh, When we went, uh, my wife, uh, we we had uh, a two-year-old boy and a five-week-old girl. Um, And uh, we were there for 11 years. Um, So uh, with with our group, uh, the Christian Missionary Alliance, um, we are basic church planters. That's what we do around the world. Uh, There are about 700 uh, Alliance missionaries working in some of the hardest places right now um, around the world, and basically we plant churches. We do it creatively, uh, depending on where we're we're 
placed. Some places we have to be real creative uh, uh, because we have to fly under the radar. And in a way, that's how we moved in the country of Jordan. Um, in, in the country of Jordan, it's 98% Muslim. And uh, although the government is somewhat friendly with the United States, uh, we had to be very sensitive about how we did our work. We were primarily focused on uh, the Muslim majority, uh, and we, our strategy was basically built on creating uh, community centers uh, where we would try to understand the felt needs of our community, what, what were really the pressing felt needs. And if we could meet those needs uh, with great excellence, we would incorporate those programs into our church uh, or into our community center. Uh, and the whole thing was to build relationships, uh, uh, live out the gospel, and proclaim the gospel when God gives us opportunity, see Muslims come to faith, disciple them, identify leaders, and, uh, and put them into uh, church ministry. That was our deal. Now, um, really early in my process there, on my third year, by the, the providence and humor of God, uh, I ended up leading that field. Our field was Jordan, Lebanon, Syria, and Iraq, and uh, leading the operations uh, of a growing young missionary team. Um, and uh, so I want to tell you a story about uh, probably our seventh year in, uh, and then I want to move uh, to a passage of Scripture that I think will draw it together. So two stories. The first one, not as important, uh, but a personal story. The second one, important because it's in God's Word, uh, and it's really the best part of uh, any sermon. Um, first of all, I'll ask you a question. Uh, have you ever experienced... The wind of the Spirit at your back. Let me explain. Have you ever experienced a, uh, in life, you might have this big a decision to make, uh, whether it's changing jobs or moving houses or doing something with your kids or I don't know what, uh, someone, something in your church where um, really felt the wind of the Spirit or the blessing of the Spirit moving you in a particular direction. Yeah, you know, God works mystery. You know, he, uh, he doesn't let us know, you know, at the beginning, um, but he leads us in, in mysterious ways. Other times, he leads us with great clarity. Uh, and so obstacles that may be in our way, he just like kicks those obstacles open and we just move ahead. The wind of the Spirit just blowing at our backs. Uh, uh, those are wonderful times in the life of a believer, and uh, I trust that you'll have many of them in your life. One such time was, uh, took place for us in, in uh, it was about 2008. And uh, it revolved around um, opportunity for ministry beginning to open up in the northern region of Iraq. And so as an, a Christian missionary, it's a missionary uh, strategy. We are looking for um, places where God identifies as a, a, a potential for good ministry, whether it's because they're, un, they're unreached, 
uh, or because they are open. Uh, there's a, a group of people that are particularly open to the gospel, and uh, we deploy to those places. And so about 2008, we were hearing uh, this rumor that in the northern area of Iraq, in what's called Kurdistan, you know, now we kind of know more about uh, this area because it's in the news some, uh, but we heard that although they are 100% Muslim, there was a unique openness, not only to Christian things, uh, you know, not necessarily the gospel at this point, but they're, they're open to Christians and they're open to, uh, you know, Americans. And that doesn't happen very often in the Middle East, where there's a, an affinity towards Americans in the general population. And so we heard about this, uh, particularly a city called Sulaymaniyah, about a, a, a city of about a million people, uh, way up in the, the north uh, northeast of Iraq. And uh, man, we had to go and see it for ourselves. So we began to take trips from from Amman uh, up to Sulaymaniyah to to get a lay of the land. Would this be an opportunity for? Uh, Young missionary families, I see several, many young families, families like you who have been developed and trained, called, developed and trained, and uh, ready to go. Uh, so is Sulaymaniyah a suitable place to gather maybe five families who would begin to do this kind of community center-based ministry in Sulaymaniyah? And uh, you have to answer some questions when you do that. You, you go and see, is it, is it even possible to get visas? Uh, is it an uh, opportunity for education for kids? Um, uh, is there a potential to rent facilities like a center? You know, all these questions need to be answered. So we took our first trip, then we took our second trip. And by the time we were, I was ready to take the fourth trip, uh, the fourth trip... The third trip. Third trip. Uh, the third trip was, uh, it was going to be a boring one. We had all this adventure. Now it was going to be boring because we were going to meet with an attorney. Any attorneys here? Any? Good. No, I'm just kidding. No, I, I really appreciate attorneys, actually. Uh, we were going to meet with an attorney, and he was going to help us navigate the very tangled red tape that is Kurdistan. Uh, all the red tape. You know what that term means. It's just really hard to get anything done in that government. Although they were friendly to us, uh, just a real matted tangle. And so that attorney was going to help us navigate. Except that this trip, I did not want to go. I wanted one of my colleagues to go instead. You know, I was busy. I was getting ready for another big trip. And uh, I didn't want to go to this one. I tried to get out of it, and no one could go for me. And I had invited two pastors from the West to the U.S. to come and join me on this trip. And any way I tried to get out of it, I couldn't. And uh, I remember very clearly waking up at 3 in the morning, because it was a 7 a.m. flight, international flight. And uh, as soon as my feet hit the tile floor, I knew I was in a terrible mood. And... You know me already enough to know that I'm a, never in a bad mood, right? Um, but I was not in a good, uh, good way, and I got up, showered. It was cold. It was kind of winter time, and I put the bags in the van, and this whole half-hour trip to the airport, these two pastors were so giddy with excitement about this trip. 
And I had to fake my enthusiasm the entire time, all the while wanting to be back in my bed. Got to the airport, checked in, got our boarding passes, went through immigration. And if you've ever traveled international, that's really where you leave the country. Uh, So got our passport stamped out of Jordan, go up the escalator to go to the gates. And at the top of the escalator were monitors like these. And on the monitor was Suleimania, Royal Jordanian, flight 237, Departing at 7.30. And next to that was this yellow word that was blinking. You know what that word was? Delayed. Delayed. New flight. 7.30. So it, it doesn't really matter. But all this to say that it was not going my way. So we sat down at Starbucks. We have a Starbucks in, in that airport. But in those days, they could still smoke in Starbucks. And, and for the five hours of waiting now... Uh, at a distance of, you know, a half hour from my own bed, the color of my lungs matched the color of my mood. <laughs> Finally, you know, 10.30, our flight is called, and it, it opens up the gates to where you can go to gate number five. Gate number five is special because you don't just board a jetway onto an airplane. You go to gate number five. You go down an escalator, out onto the tarmac. You get on a bus, and they take you way out because... Any flights coming and going from Iraq in those days, they parked them way, way away from the airport. And I'm not sure why, but it doesn't sound very safe. So we got on the bus, and this bus driver had never, I don't think he had ever driven before, because we're, we're standing. It's all of us are standing holding a pole. And I hold it high, because there are less germs up there. You know what I'm talking about. And that bus is... Taking off fast, stopping fast, turning left, right fast, turning left fast. And everyone is doing this dance on this bus. And finally, the guy just out of nowhere slams on the brake. Everyone lurches forward. And I have this real heavy briefcase on my shoulder full of computer equipment and files. It swings forward, comes back into the pole, right into the hand of a German contract worker. Now, I don't speak German. (laughs) And I'm glad I don't. (laughs) He became very upset with me, uh, as if I had done this on purpose. And, uh, you know, my morning just kept getting worse. And I'm, Lord, what? You know, complaining to God. Finally, we get to the plane. You go up the stairs. And I walk back to my seat, a seat I had chosen on the Internet, an aisle seat, because I'm tall, and there was someone seated comfortably in it. So uh, if you travel by air, this is a good one for you. I took my boarding pass, and I said, sir, it seems like we've been assigned the same seat this morning. Isn't that polite? (laughs) And he says, no, no, this is not my seat. I said, I know. (laughs) Less polite. So he moved to the middle of three. I took my seat. Uh... So now there are three of us. Uh, but my head's on a swivel because I'm looking for a row that's empty. Because, I, you know, I want to go to, to sleep. I don't want to have to talk to anybody. How's that for a good missionary? <laughs> Didn't want to talk to anyone? I see that hand. And sure enough, there was not a lot of travel to Iraq in those days, and there were whole rows empty. And I couldn't wait for that door to close. 
because I was going to pop out and go. Uh, door closed. I stood up. The guy in the middle puts his hand on my thigh and says, no, no, don't leave. Let's talk. So I sat down. There is a point to this story. I sat down. And uh, now remember why I'm going. He said, uh, you know, my name is uh, so-and-so. I, I'm the director for the United Nations for Kurdistan. I said, well, hello. <laughs> and we began to talk about our hope for Suleimaniyah. He said, are you, uh, are you an NGO or a, are you a Christian group? And my heart starts to pound. And I said, yeah, we're with the church. And he said, good. We need you. So we began to talk about this idea of establishing a community center where we'd teach English to their young people and we would teach job training and service English and, and uh, whatever else they needed. We would be there for them and get to know them. And he gets excited about this job. He's Kurdish. And uh, so as we're talking, he says, hold on a second, Mr. Ed. <laughs> so we know, how, we know who's old here. You're old. I know that now. That's a horse back in the black. And... Mr. Ed, uh, hold on a second. And it, uh, he talks to the guy at the window. And he comes back to me and he says, Ed, I want to introduce you to His Excellency Gutierrez Abdullah, the Deputy Governor for Suleimania. And I put my hand in his hand, and I've forgotten about the UN guy now. <laughs> and he begins to talk to me about his heart for his young people in that city, the brokenness that's there, and his longing for us to work together. And his longing for us to come, the church to come and establish itself in Sulmania. And he says, uh, where, do you, where are you going to have your center? I said, where do you want our center? <laughs> and he said, there's a wonderful road that's easily accessed by all the other parts of the city by public transportation. You should have it on that road. I said, we'll have it on that road. He says, are you going to rent, buy, or build a center? I said, should we rent, buy, or build? <laughs> He says there's, there's land, uh, there's buildings to buy, and there's buildings to rent. And there's land also to build on. But if you build, it will take too long because we need you now. He said, so if you decide to build, I will open up the University of Suleimania for your group to come and operate your center while you build for free. He says, can you come to my office this week? And I said, well, let me check my. <laughs> I said, yes. Thursday, Thursday. He gave me his card for the rest of the trip. It's not a long trip. The rest of the time we're talking. I'm trying to show the card to one of the pastors across the aisle. And he finally sees it. His eyes get as big as saucers. He begins to pray. The plane lands. I say my goodbyes, and now I'm walking across the tarmac, thinking to myself, oh, what a terrible attitude I had. 
And in spite of it, God has done this thing in my life. We got to the hotel. I'm almost done with this part. Got to the hotel. In the lobby is our attorney, young, new suit, new briefcase. It's the trifecta of bad signs that your attorney is not very experienced. You want someone who's like weathered, you know, old, old briefcase. Anyway, we sit down, and he actually did, did a good job for us. Sat down, and he says, okay, here's the plan. We're going to get all reports from your future team members, and we're going to go and get them certified, copied. And then we're going to get, uh, we have to go across town to this office and get them stamped. And then we have to take those over to this office and get a signature on the stamp. And then we have to take these documents and go over to this office and this document, over to this office, this one, over here. And I took the card out of my pocket, and I said, can he help us? And he took that card, and his, his jaw hits the floor. He said, where did you get this? I said, he's my friend from the plane. <laughs> and he looked at me very seriously, and he said, Mr. Ed, they always call me that. Mr. Ed, he will open many doors for you. And I'll tell you, here we are a number of years later, and he has opened many doors for us. Well, God has, right? So today we have this beautiful community center just working, making all kinds of hundreds and hundreds of students come to our center, knowing that we follow Jesus. Next to that, worship. Uh, and uh, it's become our most fruitful Islamic ministry in the Middle East, where we're seeing people baptized constantly. So, what happened? How do we interpret what happened in that story? Because this is not a story about Mr. Ed. It's not a story about Gutierrez Dalla. It's as if the eyes of God moving to and fro across the northern deserts of Iraq settled on this city made up of men and women and children. The city of Sulaimaniyah. And God knew every man, woman, and children's name because God created each one of them. He knew the number of hairs on their head. He knew their personalities better than their own family members. And God longed to be connected in relationship with them. So what did he do? In part, he collided the life of a grumpy missionary with a man of influence. For the sake of the gospel. Do you believe God moves like that? This is mission. It's mission in Sulaimania. And it's mission in Huber Heights. It's how God moves. It really does remind me of a story in scripture. One of my favorites in now for the most important story. Acts chapter 8, if you have your Bibles or uh, it has a Bible app, go to that uh, passage, uh, Acts chapter 8. A little background in the book of Acts, if you're new to Christianity or you're kind of asking questions about the faith uh, that we follow. Um, The book of Acts is a continuation of the story of Luke. So Luke is the author of the Gospel of Luke and the the book of Acts. And really, they could go side by side, although they don't appear side by side in the Bible. Uh, 
the book of Luke is the story of Christ and his life. And the book of Acts picks up just as Christ is finishing his earthly ministry and ascends into heaven. And uh, the Holy Spirit then comes in Acts chapter 2 and the church begins. So it's really, uh, the book of Acts is the story of the ministry of the Holy Spirit through his people, through the planting of churches. That's what it is. And you'll see at the very beginning of the book of Acts, that church is planted first in Jerusalem. And oh my goodness, it's a very exciting beginning. Uh, Experiencing, and now you're a church plant, seven years old. Check this out. Uh, uh, Peter is preaching um, uh, to the community. Uh, He warns them, pleads with them, say, Uh, those who heard Peter preach, uh, who accepted his message, were then baptized, and about 3,000 were added in one day. So that's church growth. And you're talking about a city of about 70,000 people in that day and age. Uh, Jerusalem was about that size. So when you're talking 3,000 out of 70,000, radically transformed by the gospel and, and begin to follow Jesus in the context of that church you could see that it had great impact in that city. And just read on the end of chapter 2, how much they loved each other. This church loved each other so much that the communities watching them, how much they love each other, and they are greatly impacted by the love the church had one for another and how they gave to each other and cared for each other. So it was a beautiful start Healing, miracles, all of this wonderful thing, all these wonderful things were happening. The church was growing. And then all of a sudden we get to Acts chapter 6 and there's a little conflict. The first conflict. And the conflict happens when, um, I won't go into it, but there are two groups represented in the church. There are those who are from a Jewish background who are following Jesus. And then there were those who are from a Greek background who are now following Jesus. And all of them had widows. There were widows in the church, and they, the church really believed that they were going to care for those widows together. Now, the widows on one side felt that the widows on the other side were getting better food. Now, this church doesn't fight, but I'll tell you what, as a district superintendent, there are churches that fight. And uh, so there's this conflict that rises, and so the, the apostles choose seven men in this situation, uh, who would then take care of the distribution of food. We'll call, them, we'll call them food distributors, seven of them. You probably can't name five of them, but you might be able to name me two. Can you give me two of the food distributors? Stephen. You've heard of Stephen. Yeah? One other. Philip. <laughs> Philip. This is not Philip the Apostle. This is Philip the food distributor. And uh, so these guys began to do their work. All along, there's this subterranean uh, persecution that begins to boil. Religiously serious in the community, uh, the Pharisees and and, uh, the religious leaders were feeling threatened by what was happening in the church. And uh, they were waiting for their opportunity. And that Acts chapter 7, where Stephen, this food distributor, has an opportunity to preach to the lost. And uh, they're so appalled by what Stephen says that Stephen becomes the first martyr in the church. 
and he's stoned to death. Now, if you're new uh, to the Christian faith, that means with rocks. It's not an <laughs> overdose. So Philip dies. Uh, uh, Stephen, Stephen dies. Uh, and now we come to the story that I want to tell you. Uh, at the end of chapter 7, um, let's see. Uh, here we come to chapter 8. On the day, on that day, what day? The day that Stephen uh, was murdered, martyred and murdered. Uh, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. So the th- very thing, that this subterranean persecution that was brewing and bubbling, it took the opportunity of the stoning of Stephen to emerge. And now this, this persecution was full-blown. Uh, it was against the church, and everyone except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria, uh, out into the countryside, into neighboring cities. So imagine uh, this church, one love church, in one day a great persecution rises up in Huber Heights against you, and it forces you to, to run, to leave with your things that you could carry, your houses, and you're now gone. You're in Dayton, you're up uh, in uh, Troy, uh, and, and you're on the run. Uh, and only the apostles kind of stayed put. Now go a little bit further. Those who had been scattered, verse 4, those who had been scattered did not run and hide. No. The Bible says those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip, now the focus, the focus is going to be on this other food distributor, uh, this ordinary guy, uh, ordinary lay person that had just said yes uh, to handing out food. Philip went down to the city of Samaria. And if you know anything about uh, this history, regular Jews did not like Samarians. They were dirty in their opinion. They were uh, corrupt in their beliefs. But Philip went down to Samaria and proclaimed Christ there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the miraculous things that he did, they, were, they all paid very close attention to what he said. With shrieks, evil spirits came out of many, and many paralytics and crippled people were healed so that there was great joy in the city. <coughs> Can you imagine who was behind that persecution? That church loving each other, caring for each other, having a good reputation in that city, growing, loving each other. And finally, it's as if God said, we need this church to get on the move because God is ascending God. You know, people who encounter God in an authentic and real way always hear a message of go. Moses, Abraham... God is ascending God, and he's looking at this church, and he arranges things in such a way that now this whole church, boom, is on the move. And guys like Philip are now preaching the word, and the whole city of Samaria is being transformed by this one food distributor, a regular guy. Now, whip on down to uh, to verse 26. Now, in the midst of that that incredible serendipitous ministry Philip was having in Samaria, 
an angel of the Lord says to Philip, Philip, go south to the road, the desert road that comes down from Jerusalem and goes to Gaza. A desert road? Now, you know me by now enough to know that I would have argued with God. You see, Philip would have known that the desert road was no good place for ministry, particularly in comparison to what was happening in Samaria. He would have known that the desert road was a place of isolation and desolation. It was a place of danger. That's where bandits would roam and wait for travelers. It was no place for good ministry. I would have said, Father, doth not thou see the work of thine hands and these, to these uh, heathen? Now, I love how Philip responds. So he started out. God called him, and he started to walk. That's obedience. That's trust that God was doing something. So he started out, and on his way, on his way, you know, you can actually go to that same road today. It's a highway, uh, but it's still a desert. And they've planted trees along the highway through the trees, and it's still a desert behind those trees. And I can just picture Philip walking down that desert road, asking God, okay, God, here I am. God, did you want me to just be alone with you for a while? Because that's important. So here I am. Let's be alone. He's walking. But then suddenly he hears the clankety-clank of wagon wheels coming from the direction of Jerusalem, going uh, southwest. And then he hears the the horse uh, feet on gravel. And he looks and he sees dust coming up from the road. And as that traveler that's coming, as he gets closer, Philip would have recognized that that carriage is not the design of Judea. It's a different design. It's, It's a foreign design. It's like living in Detroit and seeing a Mercedes come down the road. (laughs) And he would have recognized that the guy on the carriage was not from Jerusalem. This guy's black in his uh, color, and he's dressed in robes that were not familiar. The Bible describes who this guy was. Uh, So he started out on his way. He met an Ethiopian eunuch. Eunuch. Think of that. Kids, ask your parents what a eunuch is. No. Think of that. Uh, uh, He's a eunuch. That means he was selected as a very young child, castrated, to serve in the palace. He was an important official in charge of all the country's treasuries under the queen, Candace, queen of Ethiopia. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and now on his way home, he was sitting in the chariot reading a book. Not just any book. As he's passing Philip, he's reading Scripture. And the fact that he has scrolls tells you he's a man of great wealth. No one had scrolls. Just the temple had scrolls. And as he's not just reading Scripture, he's reading from the prophet. And Isaiah wrote a lot, but he wasn't reading just any prophecy As he's passing Philip, the Ethiopian eunuch is reading a prophecy about who? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Now imagine 
coincidence. It's not a coincidence, right? Listen to what he was reading and think. Now think of his own story. Selected as a child. Mutilated. Yet had no opportunity for his own family or for any descendants. Now listen to what he was reading. He was... before the shearers silent so he did not open his mouth what have when he was ushered away none in his humiliation he was deprived of justice who can speak of his descendants this is a prophecy about Christ but think of these these words in the context of a eunuch Who can speak of his descendants for his life was taken from him from the earth? Not his current life, but his future, his, his heritage. So let me back up a little bit. Um, As the chariot goes by, an angel, the God, whispers to Philip and says, go run alongside. So we know the the guy is moving and now Philip pulls up his tunic, is running alongside the chariot. Now, if I'm a wealthy guy in a chariot, this is making me uncomfortable. (laughs) Dude, don't run next to my chariot. But it's Philip. And Philip says, do you understand what you're reading? And this is what the Ethiopian says. How can I understand unless someone explains it? Now, you know what evangelism means? It means uh, our responsibility as believers to proclaim with our mouth the gospel to the lost. So uh, evangelism. So it's like witnessing. Um, From an evangelist perspective, that question that the Ethiopian asks, or or that statement, we call that a slow pitch. Now, this is a church that likes sports. I can see this. I see Browns. No, that's not Browns. Sorry. I'm very sorry. I'm very sorry. That I see. Oh, you separate that way? Okay, a slow pitch evangelism opportunity. Uh, how can I understand this prophecy about Jesus unless someone explains it? Whoa, that's easy for us, man. Uh, Now, I know that as Christians, most of us live our Christian life with this sort of a a slow-grade guilt that we don't share the gospel like we should. I'm a pastor for 25 years, and I feel that way sometimes. And and we have our reasons, you know, uh, reasons like, I I won't even look at anyone right now because I don't know you, and I don't want to make you feel like I'm talking straight to you, but, uh, you know, you these opportunities come and you don't do it and you're, you're worried that you're not equipped enough, you don't know what to say really. Uh, you're worried that you'll offend because the gospel is very offensive. Uh, you're worried that you'll face ramifications in your workplace. What, whatever the reason. Uh, sometimes you've tried it and you end up in an argument and you don't want to do that. So uh, 
Um, so it's difficult for us to be uh, witnesses or proclaimers of the gospel, except when there's a slow pitch. A slow pitch is when someone says, it's a colleague, let's say maybe you're a teacher, and so another teacher comes to you and says, man, I'm having so much trouble with, with uh, my husband. I see that you, you guys are doing well as a couple. What's your secret? It's a slow pitch. Bam! There's nothing special about us, but I'll tell you, you know, we, we are really devoted to our faith in Christ. And because of the sacrifice, you know, and you can take it from there. Or someone comes to you and says, I'm having terrible trouble with my kids. None of them follow the Lord. And I see that your kids do. No, not, not follow the Lord. Uh, they're in, uh, they, they're, they fight like cats and dogs. They're always in trouble. What's your secret? Or uh, uh, do you want on Sunday morning? Oh, I can't go out on Sunday. Why can't you go out? Well, I mean, church is a huge part of our lives. Uh, we love our church. You ought to come sometime. Slow pitch opportunities. Have you, have you ever thought about waking up Monday mornings, tomorrow morning, and saying, Lord, an authentic prayer like this, Lord, I stink at witnessing. I'm, I just, I'm afraid. I'm not equipped. I, I, I'm reluctant. Lord, could you give me a slow pitch this week? Do you think that's a prayer that God would withhold from you if you actually asked for it? I promise you, church, One Love Church, if you pray that prayer as you enter the week, I promise you, you will come back next week with stories of how God answered that prayer and equipped you to speak the gospel. How can I understand this passage of Scripture about the Messiah unless someone explains it? And Philip says... I can explain it. He invites Philip into the carriage. Philip opens that scroll, and they drive down towards Gaza. Philip explaining to him what that prophecy was about, that this man, that this prophecy is talking about is the Son of God, and he died for you, man. He died for you so that you could be free and reconciled to the God who you were looking for at Jerusalem and didn't find. We know he met Jesus because the rest of the story. As they went along, they came to a body of water, a pool in the desert. And the Ethiopian says, what is to keep me from being baptized today? And Philip said, about a 10-week course back in our church. <laughs> no. Philip said, nothing, nothing, nothing. Now, what comes to your mind, and this, I'll close with this. What comes to your mind when you think of a pool in the desert? Here's what I used to think. Yeah, I always get mirage. <laughs> An oasis, yes. An artesian well feeding this about a one-acre, two-acre body of water, crystal clear, about 60 degrees. <laughs> mm, white contoured sands blown by the wind, arching palms, <laughs> heavy with date, palm, a camel, Right? And silhouetted by a setting sun. <laughs> Those do not exist. 
a pool in the desert is actually a filthy place. It's where all the livestock come and drink. You know what livestock are? You know what they do? Yeah. Anyway, uh, so we see this beautiful picture of this man of great wealth who is broken in body. Finding Jesus, they get out of the chariot, they go into the water to be baptized. Philip baptizes him. Bam. It reminds me of a time I, I baptized this Muslim uh, convert who was from Iraq, and he came out of the water in this inflatable pool, kind of like yours, but inflatable. And he threw his hands full of water up into the air. And he Alhamdulillah, nashkur Rabb, biyasam yasul masiyah, shukran ya Rabb, shukran ya Rabb. And I, kinda, I feel like that's what that Ethiopian did that day. Except when he came out of the water, Philip would have been gone. Do you know this? Uh, uh, they stopped the chariot. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, a miracle, and the eunuch did not see him again. So the eunuch comes out of the water, and now Philip is gone. And uh, he's probably gone. <laughs> Where's that man? Uh, and I love how the story ends. When he came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord took him away, didn't see him again, but he, the Ethiopian, went on his way rejoicing. Why did he rejoice? He had met Jesus. Did he physically meet Jesus? No. He met a food distributor. He met people like you who had a message. And so what happened? This is not a story about Philip. And it's not a story about the Ethiopian eunuch. It's as if the eyes of God were moving across East Africa and they settled on a nation, a people, a kingdom of Ethiopia, men, women, and children. He had created on purpose. Why did he create them? To have a relationship with him. And there was no good witness for him there. And so what did he do? Did he come in lightning and thunder? No. Did he come in a hurricane? No. He came through a man. God used a food distributor and collided his life with a man of influence. I, I was sitting next to an Ethiopian Christian once uh, in uh, uh, Morgantown, West Virginia. And uh, I, I said, um, hey man, do, do, I think I didn't say man, I, I think I knew his name. Uh, I said, I know that Ethiopia considers itself a Christian nation. He said, oh, yes. I said, um, if I were to ask an Ethiopian Christian when the gospel came, what would he say? He would say, when the Ethiopian eunuch came. And you know, today, Ethiopia continues to be the fastest growing evangelical church per capita than any country in the world at 8%. There's a revival happening. So as you think about your lives here, do you not think God is at work in a similar way? When you think about the apartment or the house that you live in or the duplex you live in, do you think you are honestly there simply because it was a good rent or a good curb appeal? 
Or do you believe the eyes of God when he moves his eyes across Huber Heights or Dayton or the surrounding area, that he settles his vision on lost people, and then he moves his people with the gospel in proximity to the lost? I believe God does that. And God uses you in his great plan to grow his kingdom. And I, when I stand before a church, I have such hope that the church would continue to be obedient to the call of God, the same call that took Philip to the desert road. Would you say yes to that? And at the same time, we are responsible for the lost around the world. The same impetus that moves us out to speak to our neighbor, that makes us look over our back six-foot fence to our neighbor to say hi, is the same impetus, the same call that takes us to Sulaimania, that takes you to Ecuador. Who went to Ecuador? You know, short-term missions are great because you see, you see, you witness what God is doing. Did you know the Alliance Church has been in Ecuador for over 100 years? Get involved. That's the invitation. Father, as we think about the way that you move, you move with great intentionality. And sometimes we wonder if it's still a good idea that you use primarily the church to grow your kingdom. Lord, is there not a better way? And Lord, your answer until today is no. And I pray, Lord, that you would infill this church with a vision, the vision that it, uh, upon which it was planted seven years ago for the lost, for the lost. May this church continue to be messy with lost people who are under disciples, who don't know their way, who don't give, who don't know how to give, who don't know how to pray, who don't know how to read the Bible, whose lives are a mess. Lord, steward new Christians to this good church. And we will be excited as you continue to write your story here. I pray that this church would continue to make faith-filled risks for your sake. And we will sure celebrate along the way. In Jesus' name, amen.